So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. If you pay any attention at all to politics in our country, or even if you don't, you've probably heard a whole lot about the Senate in the last little while. Specifically, senators behaving very badly. It's like senators gone wild up in Ottawa. Canadians woke up this morning to new revelations about the Senate corruption scandal. 30 violated spending rules. Nine referred to the police for investigation. The Crown says Duffy abused his position as a senator. There's word one senator, former Liberal Mac Harb, owes upwards of $200,000, far more than was first reported. And a verdict in the case of Senator Raymond Levine. He was convicted today of fraud and breach of trust. Senators did not always consider the requirement to ensure that expenses funded with taxpayers' dollars were justifiable, reasonable, and appropriate. Meredith has been removed from the Conservative caucus, but still remains a senator. Since it was revealed last week that the 50-year-old Pentecostal pastor had an alleged two-year sexual relationship with a teenager, starting when she was just 16. The situation with uh, Senator Brezzo is uh, is terrible. It is... Uh... Uh, extremely appalling and uh, disappointing and we all feel very let down. People in the Senate work very hard and take their responsibilities very seriously. Senators is wildin'! Now Andre, I'm gonna admit, I don't know a whole lot about what Senators are supposed to do, but that, that ain't it. That definitely is not the wave and it feels like every other day there's one Senator or another getting in trouble for some kinds of like underhanded shenanigans or chicanery. And it also seems like every other day there's somebody, some MP or somebody in the media who's calling for abolishing the institution altogether. For example, the leader of the NDP, Thomas Mulcair, has said that he would move to abolish the Senate if he becomes Prime Minister. And lately, he's been looking pretty good in the polls. I mean, just abolish it. Get rid of an entire legislative body that's been around since the country was founded. That can't be that easy. Doesn't the Senate do stuff? Let's see. As far as what they're supposed to do, they review legislation coming from the House of Commons, and they... You know what? I'm going to defer to my guests on this one because I have no idea. You know, we do have two excellent guests here to break down for us what the Senate is supposed to do and what it actually does. And once we get through that, you guys can decide whether or not it's worth hanging on to. By the way, did you just say chicanery? You damn right I said chicanery. You're not the only one that gets to flex the vocabulary on this show. The man stayed up with his thesaurus last night, folks. I gotta hand it to him. <laughs> Welcome back, Desmond. Let's start the show. I'm Andre Demise. And I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's best online audiobook service. One book that listeners of Canada Land Commons might like 
is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And in this book, Wilkerson describes one of the largest undocumented migrations that happened in U.S. and perhaps even world history, where black Americans who were persecuted by Jim Crow laws migrated out of the South, which is why you ended up getting such large black populations in cities like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. Now you can read this book or any other one in Audible's 180,000 volume library for free with a 30-day membership. Just visit audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand to get started. So this episode, we're joined by Heather Hewson. Heather's a PhD candidate at McGill University who specializes in the Senate. So Heather, can you tell us a bit about your research? Well, I look at Senates in advanced democracies like Canada, the United Kingdom, and what politicians are actually trying to accomplish when they say that they want to change them. Perfect. And just so the listeners know, Heather's joining us from California at six in the morning. So thank you so much. I know I couldn't do it. I'm just glad you want to talk to me about it. We're also joined by Paul Wells. He's the political editor at McLean's Magazine, a job that would certainly require you to consider the Senate and Senator's pretty often. Is that a fair thing to say, Paul? It makes me consider the Senate a few times a month. I think that's probably fair to say. That's probably a few times more a month than anyone else. We've reached Paul in our nation's capital in Ottawa. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, First question is, well, what is the Senate? What do they do? It's officially the second chamber in our parliament. It's got many of the same powers as the House of Commons, but it rarely exercises those because in our system of government, the Commons is supposed to have supremacy over everything else. There are 105 seats distributed province by province on a regional basis. If you want to sit in the Senate, you need to be at least 30 years old and own $4,000 in real property. And you get to stay there until the age of 75. You need to own $4,000 in real property to be in the Senate. Where in Canada can you get property at $4,000? I'm sure that you could buy a postage stamp. It's only been a problem in the appointment of one senator who was a Catholic nun who had taken a vow of poverty. The $4,000 real property requirement isn't all that burdensome these days. I guess, but doesn't that make us a bit of an aristocracy if somebody has to own property in order to be appointed? Well, the reason why they included that was because, remember, until 1896, Canada had more people moving out than in. So when they were setting up Confederation, they wanted to come up with a way to make sure that people in government would have a vested interest in the long-term health of the country. So they decided, let's have them own property. And the value of this $4,000 in today's money, it's the equivalent of about $82,000 these days. So it was enough to hold property, but not necessarily be the wealthiest of the wealthy. I think that'll get you about one month's rent in Toronto. But anyway... (laughs) Heather, you mentioned the regional breakdown of the Senate. Can you explain that a little bit more for us? The reason was to provide overcompensation of underrepresented groups. So in Canada, this is often looked at in terms of being a matter of representation of regionally smaller areas. So the Maritimes will be overrepresented. Ontario and Quebec tend to be underrepresented. But the way that our population has grown means that some provinces are really overrepresented. Who's really overrepresented, for example? Prince Edward Island and the territories, actually. But the idea is that while they may have smaller populations, they still have 
interests which are important to the overall welfare of the country and so are deserving of a bit more representation than their simple population would otherwise entitle them to in the commons. This might be my Ontario showing, but for example, what value does the Northwest Territories bring to Canada? I'm going to get in so much trouble (laughs) for asking this question. (laughs) First Nations representation. For one thing, Uh, the Northwest Territories, Nunavut, they have very large First Nations populations and very often prime ministers will make sure that the senator from the NWT, from Nunavut, is at the very least very well versed in First Nations politics. Paul, I want to bring you into the conversation. How do you see the role of the Senate today? Is it exactly as it always was? Is it working? For the last couple of years, the Senate has obviously been in turmoil. The normal business of the Senate is essentially to rethink the business of the House of Commons and to think more deeply about issues that might get ignored in the partisan environment of the House of Commons. So, Folks in the House of Commons get elected every three or four years, uh, typically. They're always worried about being re-elected, and they're normally confined to a slate of issues that are determined by the party leaderships on partisan grounds. Like, what issue can we use to make the other side look bad, to make our side look virtuous? And there's obviously a million things that need doing that are outside that. And theoretically, and often in fact, senators who don't have to worry about being reelected and who were doing something else before they were in politics can sort of say, well, what about this other issue? Or what about this piece of housekeeping that needs taken care of? So the Senate is supposed to function on a longer timeline, frankly, with less urgency and more curiosity about the issues that Canada has to address than the hustle and bustle of the lower house, the House of Commons. How does that exactly work then? Is is, is it that the House of Commons passes legislation, and then how much tinkering goes on? Like, give us an example of a piece of legislation that the House of Commons passed, and the Senate took a look at and said, oh, no, 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 we got to change this. The Senate usually tries to use its powers preemptively because they know that since they aren't elected, people are going to question their democratic legitimacy when they decide to step in and and overrule the House of Commons. This uh, self-restraint is a really important component of Senate activity. So until 1990, the Senate had formally used its veto only once, and that was in 1913, to get us a Navy. Perhaps one of the best examples of what the Senate canon is supposed to do was in October of 1997, there was a private member's bill, which is often referred to as the Son of Sam bill. It was supposed to prevent those who had been convicted of crimes from profiting from work that described those crimes. It had only one day's debate in the House of Commons where it passed with unanimous consent. But when it came to the Senate, they had 13 meetings on it, about 30 different witnesses, and they realized that it was so broadly written that it would have banned work by Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Louis Riel, and so they had to step in and say, no, this violates charter rights. We cannot keep this piece of legislation as it's written. So that's really interesting, actually. So the Senate can step in and say, what you have tried to pass does not live up to the Charter of Rights, and therefore you have to change it. I'm fascinated by that because it seems that we hear that so seldom. Definitely. And uh, it's not just a case of if bills violate the Charter, but we'll also see senators who are pushing to expand rights. In 1992, Noel Kinsella began pushing for sexual orientation to be read into the Canadian Human Rights Act. 
So a lot of early steps in the Canadian LGBT movement were as a result of a conservative senator who was working against his own party to expand the definition of rights in Canada. Really fascinating. One thing that senators all have in common is that they're appointed by politicians. How effective can you really be at vetting the government when you're appointed by partisan people? Well, some of the most independent-minded members of the Conservative caucus have been senators, typically senators who were appointed by previous prime ministers and sort of fetched up in Stephen Harper's caucus and would show up at caucus meetings and and get the prime minister to sign their Christmas cards and all that stuff, uh, but would keep an independent view on things. Uh, Obvious examples are Pierre-Claude Nolin, who was the speaker of the Senate before he passed away earlier this year and who had what were viewed within his caucus as idiosyncratic views on legalization of marijuana. He was an early and and strong advocate for legalization, full legalization of marijuana. It's hard to kick somebody out of your caucus. Take apart the truly weird case where Justin Trudeau kicked every liberal senator out of his caucus. We're going to get to that, yeah. But in, in individual cases, there's a huge uproar if you kick someone out of your caucus. It gets noticed. It suggests there's dissent about your leadership. And a lot of senators have played with that to strike truly individual courses on issues in legislation. Okay, so what influence can the Senate actually wield uh, over policy? They have all the same powers as the House of Commons, except that they don't have control over money bills. They can't move a motion of non-confidence in the government. Sorry, and what is a motion for non-confidence? A motion of non-confidence is when the House of Commons says we no longer believe that the Prime Minister and Cabinet have the ability to govern the country in the way that we trust them to. Okay, and as far as stopping legislation from passing, um, we just saw a couple of controversial bills come uh, through the through the House of Commons. Wait, wait, we saw a couple? <laughs> Where have you been, man? <laughs> Recently, we saw some very highly publicized bills come through the House of Commons that I saw in, in, uh, in media reports, at least. Uh, there was some hope that the Senate would block uh, the bills from passing because they probably would not pass constitutional muster. How much ability does the Senate have to stop bills from happening? Well, so long as they have the motivation to do so, they certainly can. But the question is, do we have the types of senators in the chamber right now who would be willing to do that? I'm afraid that the answer is largely no. Almost the entire Conservative caucus has been appointed by the current Prime Minister, and he's made choices in his selection of candidates that has made for a very partisan caucus. We need to keep in mind that the Senate is the Prime Minister's house. He's the one who makes every single appointment. That's quite a bit of power for a single Prime Minister to wield, especially if they've been in power as long as the current one has. So, Paul, you cover federal politics and you probably know that the average member of parliament in this country is not well known. Senators are even less well-known. How do you think it affects their job that people don't know who the heck they are and for the most part, what the heck they are doing? In some ways, it's a boon, right? You can follow your nose and look at the issues that interest you without constant scrutiny. But I I mean, I would contest the the notion that a lot of these folks are perfect unknowns. So you've got Art Eggleton, who used to be the mayor of Toronto. You've got Larry Campbell, who used to be the mayor of Vancouver. I mean, I could go on. I wouldn't even have to necessarily get into prominent broadcasters like Pamela Wallen and Mike Duffy. 
So I guess what I'm saying, though, is we don't see the day-to-day coverage. Unless something seems to be going wrong in the Senate, it is almost never discussed on a day-to-day basis, which might lead people to believe that there's nothing that compelling or interesting going on. Part of that is the arcane rule that nobody is allowed to broadcast images from the Senate, and it reduces the, frankly, the accountability. I mean, There's an old adage that light is a disinfectant, and there literally hasn't been any light allowed in the Senate in terms of people able to watch in the history of the place, and I think that's been a problem. Just drawing back to our our matter of self-restraint, which Heather brought back earlier, there doesn't really seem to be a whole hell of a lot of restraint happening in the Senate right now. There are different cases. I know senators who are as frugal and abstemious as uh, you could imagine. And then, as we've discovered, Mike Duffy was not the worst case of overspending and playing fast and loose with the rules. As a general rule of thumb, politics has been cleaning up in Canada for a very long time. I'm now one of the senior members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery, God help us all. When when I got here, the uh, members lobby in the House of Commons had a pop dispenser that sold beer for like a dollar a beer. So members were able to get taxpayer subsidized beer. (laughs) Okay, how do I get in on this, please? Well, unfortunately, everyone ruined it for everyone else because a reporter reported on this and then some uh, members of the House of Commons squealed that the press gallery had a similar cheap beer dispenser. And so in a folly of mutually assured destruction, each side shamed the other into getting rid of his cheap beer dispenser. Bunch of snitches. This is what happens. (laughs) I believe that the real story of the Mike Duffy affair is that he was doing more or less what senators were getting away with up until three years ago. And all that changed was that Glenn McGregor, the Ottawa citizen, started asking some questions. And the immediate response, not just from Duffy, but from the conservative leadership was, go away, you silly man. You don't understand the way things are. And when McGregor was still there after a few days, plainly somebody in the prime minister's office said, you know what, this is indefensible. And a decision was made to cut Mike Duffy loose. I'm persuaded that that is the story of what happened here. Okay, so they might have thrown one man under the bus, but it seems like the amount of senators that there are to be thrown under the bus, it's like the entire road is paved with human bodies. At least to my perception, it doesn't seem like it's just a matter of the rules gradually changing to allow for more sunlight, let's call it. It it seems like there's just a whole lot of senators behaving badly. We saw what happened with Patrick Brazo a little while back, where at first it seemed like there might be a small thing with him happening domestically, and then he ends up on charges of sexual assault. And uh, there's Senator Don Meredith. It hits really close to home because Senator Meredith did a lot of evangelizing work out in the Rexdale neighborhood where I live. And he just got brought down because somebody claimed that he was uh, having a relationship with an underage uh, layperson. I guess all that we can say about that is uh, he sure didn't have a lot of defenders three hours after that story hit. And if we were to break for a half hour and I was to go and look through a week's worth of copies of the newspaper, I could find an awful lot of people in an awful lot of lines of work who were doing an awful lot of indefensible things. Until you can show me that the Senate is a uniquely depraved institution rather than about as depraved an institution as the one five blocks away that runs on private money, then I don't think you've completed your case. I'm being a little flippant here, but the Senate is supposed to represent Canada. It seems to sometimes represent Canada's crooks and perverts. Why do you think that we see so many scandals erupting out of the Senate? Because Because about 20 times as many reporters are looking at the Senate this year as we're looking in 2012. And the Auditor General has been helping us out. I've got a global news piece here that suggests it will take the Senate more than 34 years to cover the cost of the Auditor General's audit looking into how senators are spending, how they're using their expense accounts. We spent $23 million on this. What's your analysis on the money that was spent to look into Senate accounts? 
We've spent wildly more money to find uh, the misfeasance than was being wasted by the misfeasers. To be fair, I suspect that this is going to lead to changes in the mores of the Senate. This is going to change, lead to changes in the way the place is run that will cut down on abuses that weren't discovered and will lead to a generally leaner operation. While the outrage over Mike Duffy and Pam Wallen and Patrick Brazo is understandable, I don't think these are the really hot issues in this country. I think the really hot issues are, did it make sense to cut the GST rather than cutting other taxes? Does it make sense to be increasing transfers to the provinces for healthcare at 5 and 6% when provincial spending for healthcare is increasing at zero and one and two percent. And and we're running around in here checking everyone's lunch receipts. I get why the Senate is, is making people upset. I sympathize with the sentiment that says, let's just get rid of the place. But if you want something to make your blood boil, there's way bigger game in this country than the Senate. Heather, let's pick up on that idea, uh, because I think a lot of the reason that we're having these conversations about the Senate now is that we have a party leader in Tom Mulcair of the NDP who Number one is quite popular these days, and he's using his pulpit right now to say that the Senate should be abolished. And I wanted to ask you, is this the first time that you can remember in recent history that an elected politician has gone after the Senate of a way of trying to gain more attention and popularity? Oh, absolutely not. The very first Senate reform proposal came up in 1874. By 1925, when it showed up in one party's campaign platform, the government of the day just said, oh, so that wooden duck is being given wings and told to fly again. All parties at some point go through this Senate reform euphoria where they say that they're going to fix all of Canada's democratic woes if only we could change this one thing about the Senate, whether that is electing it or getting rid of it entirely. So let's just imagine that there is this like parallel universe in which the Senate is abolished. Is this a better body of uh, legislators or is it worse? Well, if we get rid of it, then we would be joining Venezuela, Iraq, the United Arab Emirates and Nepal as the only large federal countries that don't have a bicameral chamber. Usually when we see countries getting rid of a second chamber, it's because they're also getting rid of their democracy. Do either of you suggest that the uh, the Senate should be abolished? No. <laughs> no, largely because I know how difficult it would be to actually do it. I'd rather we devote our national energies to things that can be done. Stephen Harper was hoping he could abolish the Senate with the consent of seven of the 10 provinces representing half the population. He asked the Supreme Court, would that be okay? Supreme Court came back and said, no, sorry, you're going to need unanimous consent of all the provinces. One of our larger provinces is Quebec, which has said again and again and again and again, we'll be happy to discuss your little abolition project as soon as you're willing to discuss entrenchment in the constitution of Quebec's status as a distinct society. We tried that 25 years ago, it didn't end well. If we were to try it tomorrow, it would not end better. And so Tom Mulcair, who's a member of parliament from Quebec and has worked in the National Assembly and has heard all of this a million times, should understand that is a rabbit hole about a hundred times more uh, hairy and disruptive and distracting from real national priorities than Mike Duffy's lunch bills. What could we do instead? What would reform look like? If the prime minister wanted to, he could make the Senate an immeasurably better institution tomorrow, especially since there are 20 vacancies right now. He could fundamentally change the characteristics of the Senate right away. Hey, hang on, Desmond, how old are you? Uh, I'm 33. I'm 34 years old. (laughs) 
Oh, wait, but neither of us own property right now. I'm sorry, continue. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, that's the only thing keeping me out, too. (laughs) There are many different things that the Prime Minister could do to improve the Senate that address many of the common refrains that people make in criticism of it. The introduction of, for example, uh, what in the UK are called cross-bench appointments. These are members of the House of Lords who don't sit with any party at all. They're just there because they've made important contributions to the national welfare and they are there to do research, revise legislation, push for better legislation. There's nothing to stop the Prime Minister from making appointments that do not sit with his party. The Senate would have to change its standing orders to make sure that these non-aligned senators would get funding for offices and research. That was the biggest problem with uh, Justin Trudeau deciding to kick out all of the Liberal senators. Suddenly, unless they banded together, they wouldn't get this research and office funding that is absolutely vital if you really want to do valuable long-term work in the Senate. I'm just really puzzled by this. So he just woke up one day and decided to hamstring all of this, the uh, Liberal Senate appointees? I think it was mostly a symbolic action on his part. He knows that Thomas Mulcair is becoming increasingly popular and his get rid of it solution is also becoming popular. And this was an act that he could take as the third party in Parliament to say that he wanted to do something about the Senate, that's all he had at his disposal. What about the idea of electing senators? The Harper government asked in their Senate reference, what if the provinces started running elections and the prime minister agreed to consider the winner of those elections as the right person to appoint? And the Supreme Court essentially said, you can't do without a constitutional amendment what would normally require a constitutional amendment. So that's another reform that sounds attractive, but would kick off a whole new round of constitutional negotiation which people are welcome to try, but I promise you it will not go well. And then when it doesn't work out well, I'll still be here to say I told you so. We just have to hope that the country would still be here. Heather, Paul's outlined for us the challenges constitutionally of having an elected Senate. So we know it would be hard to do, but might it be a good thing to do? It's a question that Canadians have to answer. Do we want to do away with most of the... Uh, hallmarks of of Canadian democracy because the very first thing that would change is that the House of Commons could no longer expect the Senate to usually stay quiet when they disagree and only disagree over really, really big issues. When you have two chambers which are elected, you can't have one that gets to decide whether or not a government stands or fall, and then the other one is just supposed to sit there twiddling their thumbs. You cannot give democratic legitimacy to one chamber and then deny it the ability to act in accordance with that democratic mandate. Okay, we're going to end by putting both of you on the spot. You each get a chance to fill one of the 20 Senate vacancies. Who are you picking and why? We're going to start with you, Heather. Who's your choice? Oh, that's really putting me on the spot. I I warned you. Well, I would beg Romeo Dallaire to go back into the Senate. He was the Canadian general who, as commander of the UN forces in Rwanda, tried to stop the Rwandan genocide. I think that he is exactly the type of person that we need in the Senate. He was not uh, a heavily partisan person. He had a very strong career prior to entry into the Senate, and he continued his work fighting against genocide and fighting for human rights once he was in the Senate. Paul, 
You're up. Who's your pick? Hmm. I would answer this way. For the next little while, at least, if I were the prime minister, I would only appoint senators in twos. And everyone I pick, I would appoint at the same time as someone I would invite the opposition to choose. I would like to thank you for being even more idealistically pie in the sky than I am on this program. (laughs) That was an awesome answer. Definitely was. Can I change mine? (laughs) (laughs) Paul Wells and Heather Hewson, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on Canada Land Commons to explain the Senate. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Desmond, do you feel like you got a better understanding of how the Senate works than when we started? Definitely. One of the things that our guests really helped to clarify for me was that the Senate might not be all that we would want it to be, but that there's definitely a possibility for it to be an important and more useful part of our democracy. Well, given that I didn't really have much of a clue as to what the Senate was and what it did when we started this conversation, I'm a little bit more confident about the Senate's place in Canada and whether or not we should keep it. So you don't want to kick it out? It seemed to me like that was the just hitting the big red button rather than finding out what measures we can take to get some better behavior happening in that uh, body of legislature. Heather Houston said that going after the Senate has been kind of a time-honored tradition in our politics. I thought that was pretty refreshing and good to know because it puts the current election that we're about to see in this fall in context. We're going to be hearing a lot about getting rid of the Senate and how important and big it is. And actually, both Heather and Paul seem to suggest, you know, we've probably got more important things to worry about. Paul Wells had a really, really hot take on the notion of scandal within the Senate. That was a, like a, that was an on fuego take. That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the man basically said there are criminals everywhere. Some of them get elected or appointed into our government. That's just the way that it is. I guess I was just pleasantly surprised to hear somebody say that just because you get appointed into a high political office doesn't mean that you're not a human being anymore. And Paul Wells is basically having the courage to say, look, these people are as flawed as the rest of us. And it's maybe unrealistic, the expectations that we have of appointed senators. I can understand that to a certain extent. But if you're the prime minister and you get sole discretion over who is appointed to the Senate, so nobody in the House of Commons, no select committee gets to sit down and then vet your choices, go through their history, talk about what it was that they did in their previous careers, any sort of scandal that they they butt up against. Well, then you end up with, with someone like Senator Don Meredith. If we were to look at some of these appointees more closely or potential appointees more closely, we would get a better and at least more well behaved Senate than we have right now. No offense to our political leadership, but I don't really have a lot of faith in their unique ability to root out sexual misconduct. But I do take your point that a lot more oversight is necessary. And I think one thing that became really, really clear for me throughout this particular conversation is that all of the major political parties who are going to be talking about the Senate in this upcoming election are kind of messing around with us a little bit. Oh, we have yeah. a, we have a prime minister who promised everybody that he was going to reform it and then basically said, you know what, nah, this is too hard. We have an opposition in Tom Mulcair who's just saying abolish it without really getting into how that would actually happen. We have the liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, being like, my senators aren't liberals anymore, even though they still fundraise for my party and even though we chat every night on Skype. So we're getting a lot of doublespeak on this issue. So Desmond, I noticed one thing really cool happened. I mean, we're sitting here with our shot glasses and this bottle of Jack here, and we didn't get to use it once because nobody used the word sober second thought. So that's our show for this week. If you'd like to engage us on social media, that is Twitter, search Canada Land Commons and it will be the first result you find. 
Big ups this week to our producers on this show, Imogen Burchard and Katie Jensen. And also music credits go to Nathan Burley. You can find us at canadalandshow.com. And if you want to get in touch through email, I'm Desmond at canadalandshow.com. And I'm Andre at canadalandshow.com. Andre is spelled A-N-D-R-A-Y. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this show, chip in. Patreon.com slash Canada Land. Send us a little bit of love. And show us some love by giving us that five-star ratings. If you like the show, tweet about the show, give us a review, tell your people. Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday, and the next episode of Canada Land Commons will be out next Tuesday. The man stayed up with his... Oh my God, I can't say the word. (laughs) This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.